Hi, dreamers. Thank you for coming back for this addendum to episode 38, The Tale of Father Dearest. If you haven't listened to it yet, it might be better if you start with that one first before you listen to this to help in put this into better perspective. So in episode 38, for me, it wasn't much of a mystery. I didn't feel like there was any basis for Robert Piernock's claim that he was framed by basically everyone he could think of. But as I was researching his case, I did happen upon a website, www.freerobertpiernock.com. Feel free to take a look at it if you like, but I will go over its main points here to see if perhaps any of them hold any water. The case for Piernock's innocence is based on his claims that he is being framed in an attempt to silence him about the corruption at the Department of Water Resources where he was once employed. I touched on this in the episode. He was accusing the department of making shoddy repairs so they would have to be called back out repeatedly to do more and more repairs that they would in turn be able to charge multiple times for a job that should have been done right the first time. According to the website, it says that its goals are to inform the American taxpayers of these fraudulent activities and exposing corrupt officials, and to inform us, the public, that an innocent man is being illegally imprisoned for life in retaliation of his efforts to try and expose this massive corruption of government officials. It claims that because of this corruption, Robert Piernock has been imprisoned and has been denied all of his constitutional rights to present a defense. Um, okay. Right off the top of this website, that right there is a false statement. He had a trial, and he was given way more leeway than he should have been, all in the name of what is fair and just for any criminal defendant. It says that he had been left helpless because he blew the whistle on racketeering scams and kickback schemes by government officials costing the taxpayers billions. Even if this were true, and someone was out to silence him, wouldn't they go for him, the one with all of this supposed information about corruption? What would framing him for killing his wife and daughter do to help? Piernock is still alive. Whether or not he's in jail, he can still talk. He can still write. He can still make all of those allegations he wants, even if he's supposedly been framed and imprisoned for life. It wouldn't do anyone any good to get rid of Claire and Natasha, even if they were going to be used as pawns or leverage against Piernock. If they were killed, then the leverage is gone. It gives Piernock even more reason to come forward with all of these claims he's making, because he's got nothing left to lose. Not really an effective way to silence a whistleblower if you ask me. Then the website goes on to basically repeat what it just said, but make it a broader statement that blankets the entire state of California by saying that these massive racketeering and kickbacks on contracts and the massive imprisonment of innocent, powerless, ordinary citizens by denying them the right to present a defense has forced California and other states into financial disaster with the loss of services to taxpayers while those in power get rich. Corrupt officials mine the taxpayers with one racketeering scam after another while filling their own pockets. Okay, but remember what I said in my show that the day that Claire and Natasha were in that car crash, 
that Piernock was off at the bank draining all of the money that Claire and he had, but ended up being told that he had so much money deposited that they didn't have enough cash on hand to close out his accounts. So I'm asking, whose pockets are being lined here? One thing I didn't mention in episode 38 was that Piernock was one of those types of people that made a killing filing frivolous lawsuits. For example, if there was a crack in the sidewalk in front of his house, he would sue the city claiming he tripped and injured himself. And he did this rampantly and frequently, and oftentimes, the suits would just be settled in order to not have to deal with the hassle of it. So again, I ask, whose pockets are being lined with taxpayer money? The website brings up again claims of not being able to put up a defense. Just because you say it more than once doesn't give the statement any more validity. He was granted his right to due process. The court put up with all of his stalling tactics, all of his firing of his attorneys, and allowed him to run amok pretty much throughout the duration of the trial, up until the judge finally put a stop to it during the sentencing hearing when he had Piernock restrained and gagged as he refused to stop interrupting the proceedings. I posted the picture of him in restraints in court with his head down on the defense table. It was a very powerful picture, and it's displayed prominently at the top of Piernock's innocence page as a way of demonstrating how he was treated in court. Now, I don't particularly like the way this was handled. I doubt this would fly in a courtroom today, but from all that I described to you about Piernock and his behavior in court, I could easily see when it was time for the victims to have their say and for the judge to throw the book at him, that Piernock just really got under the judge's skin to the point where he had to go to these extreme measures of restraint. The website then says that the only way to free Piernock is to expose the corruption by educating and informing the public, hoping to bring enough attention to the government's malfeasance so the honest officials will open up an investigation into this corruption. Exposing government corruption is, of course, a good thing. I'm not saying that there aren't corrupt government officials out there. We've all seen many a fall from grace over the years as people in a position of power have abused that power for their own benefit. There may very well have been a scam of sorts going on with the Department of Water Resources. However, I do believe whatever corrupt activity was or is going on in that department, or any department governed by the state of California, does not have a connection with the murder of Claire Piernock or the attempted murder of Natasha Piernock. I would even be more likely to believe that if there was corruption and scheming going on, particularly during the time when Piernock was employed with the Department of Water Resources, that he was more likely a part of the scheming than not. And once he was no longer employed with them, he had to find other means of easy money-making schemes, hence the frivolous lawsuits. This man was clearly all about money. Who went to the bank the same day his wife died and drained all of their accounts of every penny? Robert Piernock. Who stood to gain from the $1 million life insurance policy upon the death of his wife? Robert Piernock. Who would rather see his wife and daughter dead than have to split any marital assets in the event of a divorce? Robert Piernock. So what would lead any of us to believe that the man capable of committing such a cold and callous crime in order to not only save himself from having to split assets in a divorce, but also gain a huge life insurance policy, isn't capable of participating in any illegal money-making racket in the company at which he's employed?
Not only would I believe that Piranock would happily participate in a corrupt scheme, I wouldn't put it past him to have spearheaded the whole thing, too. So, hoping for an investigation into corruption, I have no problem with that. But making a connection to Claire's death and Natasha's near death is likely never going to happen. Following these opening paragraphs on the Free Robert Piernock website, there are some rambling bullet points, which at several points don't even really make any sense. And some of the claims are just laughable at best. I'll read them off to you. And there are two things I want you to listen for. One is if you can make sense of any of this. And two is if you're buying any of it. Because I'll tell you right now, I find the whole thing to be utter horse poop. This is what it says. And I am not making any of this up, okay? The judge, who has a clear conflict of interest. And by the way, dreamers, whoever wrote this stuff put some of the words in quotation marks, some of the words in all caps which leads me to believe that the author of this website was really amateur and didn't know what the heck they were doing. Okay, so the judge has a quote-unquote conflict of interest, illegally imprisoned him for life using an illegal quote-unquote second-mocked rigged trial with the judge's bribed defense attorneys and rigged jury with the judge's orders that no defense was allowed, held in violation of quote-unquote double jeopardy, Double jeopardy was established when their made-up story and false testimony was quote-unquote completely impeached and dismissed as quote-unquote untrue, and the adjudication trial when Robert Piernock was allowed his constitutional rights to represent himself. Excuse me, but his case was never adjudicated where he was found not guilty anywhere. He would have had to have had gone through a trial, been acquitted, and then tried again. That never happened. So, I don't know who put this information together for Piernock. Maybe he did it himself. And perhaps with all of the changes in judges and attorneys, that he somehow twisted it up in his mind that he was subject to double jeopardy, but no. Piernock, you were convicted fair and square. With defense attorneys of your choosing and jurors, you had every right to seat or dismiss for your trial. Next, the website says, They repeatedly duct taped, shackled, and beat him unconscious during the second illegal rig trial to prevent any defense. Okay, let's pick this apart. First of all, how in the world is anyone going to be beaten in court? Have any of you guys out there listening ever heard of anything like this happening? Where a defendant was beaten during his or her trial? How was this accomplished? Do they pull you out of court and rough you up in your holding cell? And who commits these beatings? Officers of the court? The deputies? Or does the judge do it himself? Did he pull Piernock into his chambers and beat him down in there? There are simply too many people around. Too many witnesses. Too much to be accountable for in the courtroom and in the courthouse itself for this to be really plausible. Besides, where are your injuries? We've seen officers beat up suspects. Even if you look at the one picture of him that exists, of him shackled with the duct tape, he doesn't really appear to be injured. So, I don't really believe any of this at all. If any of you listening believe that it's likely a defendant is beaten during his or her court proceedings, I'd like to hear about it, or if you have an example, or if you know of a time when this happened, unless the defendant himself or herself becomes violent and combative in the courtroom, and had to be physically restrained, please bring it up in the discussion page. 
It also says repeatedly duct tape, shackled and beaten. The media was present there during the trial. The only time this happened, and a beating was not a part of this, was at the sentencing, and it was brought about by his own behaviors and him refusing the orders of the judge to keep his mouth shut while others were trying to say their piece. He had his chance during his trial, and he wasn't allowing others to have theirs. The website then goes on to say that the judge forced on him the judge's bribed defense attorneys in violation of all constitutional rights to block all defense. Okay, so this is not a thing either. Yes, in the end, the judge ruled that after six changes in defense attorneys that Piernock hired and fired himself, that the last attorney that he had hired for himself would be the one to remain on the case for the remainder of the trial a stipulation to which Piernock agreed to, mind you. These were attorneys of his choosing. The judge never forced any attorney on him. None of these attorneys were public defenders either. Piernock had the money to hire his own attorneys. Even though lawyers for Claire's family fought to keep the Piernock money intact and attempted to block any of the funds to go towards Piernock's defense, they were unsuccessful and... He was granted a portion of his money to pay for his defense. He hired every single one of his attorneys, right down to the last one. None of them were provided to him by the state of California. And as for the judge bribing the defense attorney, to what end? To throw the case for Piernock? If you ask me, it was an unwinnable case for any defense attorney to begin with. I don't think anyone needed to be paid off to lose this case. And besides, Piernock took the stand. He had a chance to make or break the case for himself, but all he did was show the jury what kind of man he truly was, and they got the message loud and clear. The only person who couldn't see what a dangerous, violent, and manipulative person Piernock was, was Piernock himself. Next, the website cast blame onto they. It says they murdered his wife beat his eldest daughter, and after she accused the judge's two accomplices for the murder, they operated on her head to destroy her mind and to make her susceptible to their brainwashing and terror so they could force her to repeat their false story to cover up their murder so that they could frame Robert in retaliation for blowing the whistle on their racketeering scams to steal taxpayers' money. Okay, are you giggling a little bit to yourself right now? Because when I read that, I sure did. So they, who is they? They is that vague person or persons to blame that seems to go around and commit anonymous crimes all over the world, aren't they? They stealthily go around ambiguously killing, maiming, vanishing people all over, all the while somehow managing to frame the unsuspecting likeliest suspects. They, whoever they are, are certainly doing a good job at what they do and manage to get all the right players on their side in order to sell the story and create the frame-up, right? Oh, and they are the accomplices of the judge, and they are the ones that did this to Claire and Natasha. That someone, these people connected to Piernock, also connected to the alleged scam at the Department of Water Resources, were able to get to the investigators and then get them to go along with their frame-up of Piernock who then got to the district attorney to buy their story too and file the charges against him 
who managed to get just the right prosecutor willing to go along with all of these trumped-up charges, who somehow was able to get all 12 jurors to go along with this fun story too. And oh, while they're at it, they managed to get Paranock's own defense attorneys on their side. All the while, all of these people were commissioned by the judge who happened to have the case assigned to his court. Right. And meanwhile, they all managed to get the doctors who were made to operate on Natasha and destroy her brain so she could be brainwashed and terrorized by, let's see, the police, the district attorney, the prosecutor, the defense attorneys, and the judges? But not her dad, right? The one person who had access to her all that day that she was beaten and plied with drugs and alcohol. The one person who was seen by Natasha's best friend Patty when she was dropping her off at her home that day, parked in front of her friend's house, who knew Natasha was afraid of. Or was Patty part of the frame-up too? Quote-unquote, they somehow got Piernock's car without his knowledge and planted it in front of Natasha's house, knowing that it needed to be seen by their witnesses in order to place him there at the scene. And then they spent all that time it took to rig Piernock's other car to set to explode with that cutter bar, and that they somehow decided to sneak into Piernock's garage and use his vice to fashion to make sure that it would be known that it was his tools that left the marks on that bar so that there would be physical evidence tying him to the rigged vehicle. But wait, if they wanted to frame him by using his own tools, why would they remove the vice from his garage and hide it from investigators if they needed that piece of evidence to be found in order to connect him to the metal cutter? Hmm, that looks like someone trying to help Piernock not be connected to the crime, doesn't it? And who is the only person who would be interested in obscuring his involvement in all of this? Robert Piernock. While framing someone, it wouldn't make a lot of sense to remove evidence that would actually help point fingers at the person being framed. Nice try, though. And as for brainwashing Natasha, I must scoff at this idea as well. I know Natasha was drunk and high on prescription drugs and savagely beaten about the head. But based on the way that she was able to recall not only what happened before she was given the alcohol, drugs, and beating, she was actually able to quite vividly recall what was happening to her throughout the duration of what she was put through that night. And it doesn't sound like any of her memory was affected by her ordeal at any point that she was actually awake. Perhaps when she slipped away or fell asleep, there are some gaps. But she recalled in great details the things that happened to her when she got home, all the way up until she was discovered by the first responders at the scene of the crash. She remembered everything. She remembered coming home that day, having that altercation with her dad, her dad beating her, handcuffing her, putting that hood over her head, force-feeding her drugs and alcohol. She remembers hearing Patty come back and knocking at the door and her dad telling her to stay quiet. She remembers her mom coming home and listening to the sounds of her dad doing the same things to her mom that he'd done to her. She remembers being placed in the back seat of the car, knowing where she was by the feel of the upholstery. She remembers her mom laying next to her. She could smell her mom. She could hear her breathing. And when she was pulled from the car by first responders, she was succumbing to her injuries. However, she was able to utter Patty's name. And when officers first came to talk to her in the hospital, she was able to tell them, quote, her dad, unquote. And only two days later, 
she was able to tell them everything that had happened to her with flawless recall. So I ask, where exactly in this time span did anyone have time to perform brain surgery and then brainwash and terrorize Natasha? Nobody did that to this poor girl. The only person who terrorized Natasha was her father. The website then says that Robert Piernock was not at the car crash, and the word not is in quotes and capitalized. That he was, caps quote, not at the car crash and murder scene by the judge's courthouse at any time as he was 24 miles away. Okay, so by the judge's courthouse. This is Cap's quote, not his courthouse. He has a courtroom, but the judge does not reign supreme over the whole courthouse. Every courthouse has several divisions, like the traffic division and the civil division and the family courts division and the criminal division. And each courtroom has its own judge. And yes, the judge presiding over Piernock's case has a courtroom in the San Fernando Superior Court. And the reason why the car crash was near, quote, the judge's courthouse, unquote, is because the car crash was staged in San Fernando. And San Fernando is only 2.37 square miles or 6.5 square kilometers in size. The car crash could have happened basically anywhere in San Fernando and been near the judge's courthouse. So that basically means nothing. And then it's claimed he was 24 miles away. 24 miles away where specifically? Doing what? With who? Where are the witnesses or proof that he was not at the scene? Was he home with his girlfriend? Is that 24 miles away from the scene? Oh, but wait. She testified to the fact that she didn't see Piernock for the entire day prior to the crash. She testified that he never came home that night. She also said that she had no idea where he was the entire next day. She was the single most important person in his life at the time, and she had no idea where he was. So he can claim all he wants that he wasn't at the scene. And maybe Natasha couldn't place him there either because he'd beaten and plied her with a large amount of alcohol and drugs. But it isn't much of a stretch to assume that since Natasha was and is fully aware that Piernock was the one who put her and her mom in that state, that he would be the one to have placed them in that vehicle with the intentions of having it and them burned up in that crash. The website next makes the claim that these same unknown they people kidnapped Piernock's daughter and illegally placed her with the judge's murder accomplice so that they could use her name to collect on the many life insurance policies that they were keeping on Robert's wife. Okay, this is just silly. They kidnap his youngest daughter. I again ask, who is they? Oh, the ambiguous, anonymous criminal mastermind? Right, they are busy people, aren't they? They might be the same theys who killed Dominique Ramsey and made Madeline McCain disappear too, right? Just because they are that good. So they kidnap Piernock's daughter. Is that what they're calling it when your mom gets murdered, your sister nearly gets beaten to death, your dad gets arrested for committing both crimes, and the child who is left without parents and an incapacitated older sister needs to be placed in the care of the state and placed into the foster care system as a result? That's kidnapping? 
Okay, institutionalized kidnapping, right? The state foster care stepped in to take care of a child essentially orphaned by this man, and he spins it into a case of child abduction? To what end? To accuse them of attempting to collect on Claire's life insurance that they were keeping? Okay, how exactly is it that they would be able to obtain any kind of life insurance on Claire without her knowing or having any kind of connection to her, much less be able to collect on it under these suspicious circumstances surrounding her murder? Besides the absurdity of all of this, it would be very, very easy to find and prove that it was Piernock and Piernock alone who took out all of those policies on his wife. And yes, since he was the benefactor and he was in jail being charged with her murder, it would make sense that her policies, if paid out, would go to the next of kin. And that wouldn't even be his youngest daughter necessarily either. There's still the matter of Natasha. She is the one who is of legal age and would sooner have access to any monies paid out by the insurance. What good would it do to kidnap the younger sibling? I don't know how much younger she was at the time, but even if you were to entertain the idea that this was a kidnapping under the guise of being in the foster care system, she would eventually be back with her sister and whomever she would be staying with as soon as her sister was well enough to take care of her. So next, the website claims that the sabotage to the car was performed long after his wife's car crashed into the pole after being cut off by the judge's accomplices so they could use their made-up story to frame Robert. First off, I don't even know what it means by after being cut off by the judge's accomplices. That perhaps the framing was an afterthought made up after Claire supposedly crashed the car? None of that really makes any sense to me. I don't really get it. Next. The author of all this stuff on the website made the car involved in the accident Claire's car. And we all know that this is clearly a lie. Remember, friends and family said that she would never drive that car. It was his car. He owned it, not Claire. And for her to wind up drunk, crashed and dead in it made no sense to anyone. And as for the sabotage performed long after, none of this is factual at all. Investigators saw most of the suspicious implements of the staging of the crash right there at the scene. The smoldering wick, the carbon deposits on the gas tank, the burnt materials in the trunk, and the interior of the victims doused in gas. All of that was in place at the scene upon arrival of first responders. The only thing that was discovered upon closer inspection was that metal spike bolted to the axle, which is something that could have been very difficult, if not impossible, to see upon a cursory once over at the scene of the crash. They found it later at the lab, and nobody broke into the lab and bolted it there after the fact. Besides, the wick was tied to it, and they saw the wick there at the scene. That means the metal spike was there all along. Nothing was sabotaged by anyone after Piernock himself sabotaged the car in his planning to kill Claire and Natasha. Oh yeah, and don't forget, he wrote about all of this too in those lists found in his stuff. Did they go into his home and plant those pieces of papers with his murder list written on them? Did they go through his belongings and find those samples of his handwriting and sit there and make sure that they were able to forge Piernock's penmanship when making those lists too? Yeah, I'm sure they did. Next, the website claims that the judge's two accomplices were at the scene the entire time and the judge's felon informant, who had a long criminal history, was covered with wet, fluid blood 
long after they forced the car off the road. Okay, I need to know, who are these judges' accomplices? The passerby who found the crash car and the homeowner who he found to call 911? Or the first responders to get to the scene? Or the first police officers to arrive? Or the first firefighters to get there? Who are these accomplices? And how, through all of the time and space between that night of the crash and the time the case went to trial before the judge, were these accomplices becoming connected? The randomness of the passerby, the randomness of the house he chose to call 911, or those who received and answered the call for help? And it just so happened that all of these stars just happened to align right at the crash scene for the conspiracy to continue to play out flawlessly right up until Pernuck was being locked up for life? Or is it more likely that the person at the scene is the one person who put them there? The one person who put them there was the one who caused them to be in the condition that they were in. The one that was named by Natasha who remembered vividly who'd done it. Because she was supposed to die, but she didn't. She lived to point the finger squarely at him. And he wasn't counting on that, was he? And then what is this nonsense about being covered with wet, fluid blood long after they forced the car off the road? I don't get what they are talking about. And who words things like that? Wet, fluid blood. Yes, it's wet. Yes, it's fluid. Yes, it's blood. But what is this trying to convey? By making it more descriptive and using extra adjectives doesn't make it any more real or believable. And besides, if there comes a point where this person or persons is observed with wet, fluid blood long after the car being ran off the road, well, isn't it already established that Natasha and Claire were beaten earlier and elsewhere? Any time long after that, blood would no longer be wet or fluid on the person who did the beating. So not only is this nonsense, it's ridiculous, contradictory nonsense. So, the website talks about the huge cement wall that the judge and prosecutor repeatedly lied about to the jury, claiming that the car was supposed to crash into, that it was not even built until three years later. This is actually irrelevant, and let me explain. I did try to find more clear pictures of the scene of the crash, but you really can't see exactly what is at the end of that road that the car veered off of. But here's the thing. I read in several reports that at the end of the road the car was headed down was a T-shaped intersection, and it was lined with concrete barricades or barriers. I don't have pictures of what these look like, but I imagine that they are similar to the concrete barricades that are used as center dividers on highways and freeways. I know those are used as standalone barriers on road construction sites or as temporary blockades for a variety of reasons. And in this instance, I would surmise that they were used to protect out-of-control vehicles from causing too much damage to whatever is behind them, which might be a business or a home or some kind of structure. I don't know if the judge or prosecutor said a large concrete wall or not. I understood it to be a concrete barrier, but concrete nonetheless. Whatever the case, it was there, and the car was aimed at it. 
A concrete wall may have been erected there three years later in place of those temporary barriers, but that's why they were temporary and described as barriers. Something was eventually going to be built there, likely, as I said, to protect from out-of-control cars coming down that hill and straight into it. Whether it was a concrete barrier or a wall or the side of a building, something was there that Piernock viewed as a good spot to crash that car into. Remember, he checked it off his list. Find location. Unless you believe in the conspiracy theory, of course, then that list was planted too. Then this was written next on the website. The judge, with his former law clerk, stole Robert's bank accounts, houses, and businesses, besides collecting and pocketing the money on over 20 life insurance policies that they were keeping on Robert's wife, a common ongoing racketeering scam by corrupt judges and cops. Okay, this is just absurd. The only person robbing Piernock's bank accounts was Piernock himself. He was the one who drained all of the money out of his accounts. I suppose he'd say he was forced to take all of that money to Vegas the day after his wife died and held at gunpoint to go and take in a Vegas show too, right? After that, they again made him get all that plastic surgery as well. They wanted to frame him and somehow drastically altering his physical appearance to help him evade capture was going to help the frame job? Was Piernock forced into cosmetic surgery by these conspirators against his will? And what of this business about the 20 life insurance policies corrupt judges and cops kept on Robert's wife? Is that even possible? If there were judges and cops out there who wanted to be corrupt, wouldn't there be an easier way to do so than taking out more than a dozen and a half life insurance policies than having that person murdered at somehow making it look like it was an accident and then when that fails, conspire a way to make it look like the husband did it? I'm pretty sure that there are more efficient ways to be corrupt. And this is supposedly a common scam. Have any of you guys heard of a ring of judges and cops going around taking out multiple life insurance policies on random people, having them killed, framing the spouse successfully, carry all of this out, and this is something that is common? Really? I'm skeptical, in case you couldn't tell. Towards the end of the homepage of the website, it goes on to disparage the author of the book written on the case, A Checklist for Murder by Anthony Flacco. By the way, I forgot to mention that the author was interviewed by Dan Sapansky on his podcast, True Murder, on his January 6th, 2016 episode entitled Checklist for Murder, if you want to search it. Anthony Flacco is very interesting to listen to, and if you do listen, I think you will enjoy hearing all of the details that I did not have time to get into, and he is good at retelling this story. There are a couple of audio issues here and there, but you know Dan Zupanski and how he does his show, and it's a live phone call, so there's no editing, there's no going back, and you get what he gets, and that is the beauty of his show. And he's so good with the interviews and keeping on track and staying on pace. One of my long-time favorites is Dan's show. So anyway, the website says that in order to deceive and brainwash the public, the judges and prosecutors conspired with the LAPD to bribe a writer to lie and distort all of the facts 
and demonize Robert Piernock in a book called A Checklist for Murder, demonizing targeted innocent citizens by lying to the public in a propaganda campaign is always carried out in a conspiracy by corrupt judges, prosecutors, and the LAPD. Whereas a propaganda book, A Checklist for Murder, consists of 390 pages of lies and distortions to deceive the public. This website contains the court transcripts of established facts. For example, Robert Piernock was not at the scene at any time and was 24 miles away. For over 25 years, Robert has been illegally imprisoned in a maximum security prison where he has been beaten and kept hidden from the public. And he was repeatedly tortured while at the Los Angeles County Jail for four years in attempts to stop him from gathering evidence. Corrupt officials claim that they have the First Amendment right to lie and deceive the public and demonize whistleblowers who expose their corruption, but the ordinary, powerless citizens have no First Amendment rights to inform the public of the truth. The internet is the only means to getting the truth out to the public. Right, because everything we read on the internet is the truth. Again, to this I say, no matter how many times it's repeated, it doesn't make it more true than the first time. Where is the proof of all of this stuff? Yes, the website says it contains all kinds of transcripts and evidence, but honestly, nobody's got time for that. In looking at the homepage of the website, if any of us were buying what they're trying to sell, then perhaps it would be worth a few more clicks. But to me, it's not. I read all that I needed to read on the homepage. I believe in Paranox's guilt from the onset, so maybe I read over his website with some biased views. Who am I kidding? I know I did. I just believe in Natasha. But even if she hadn't survived to tell her story, I'd still believe in his guilt over this conspiracy nonsense. This website is just silly to me. I find it to be outlandish, and honestly, it's quite pedestrian in its overall format and content, especially if its purpose is to be the first stop in proving Piernock's innocence. It's the real propaganda, not Anthony Flacco's book. And I don't even think that this website even rises to the levels of propaganda, as by definition, propaganda is biased information used to influence an audience to further an agenda. I doubt Piernock and his website is really playing to any kind of notable audience to begin with. In this case, dreamers, it would be an opportune time for us to break out our Occam's razors and apply its logic to Piernock's case. Do we believe the simplest explanation is usually the right one? Let's take a look. Are we going to believe that they, starting with the passerby who found the crashed car, the homeowner who called 911, the paramedics who arrived at the scene, the police officers, the firefighters, the tow truck driver, the forensic analysts, the crime scene analysts, the laboratory technicians, the entire emergency room staff, all the nurses, all the doctors, everyone who encountered Natasha at the hospital, detectives assigned to the case, the arresting officers, the interrogating officers, not to mention all of the insurance agents and salespeople who sold policies on Claire's life, the bank employees who closed out all of Piernock's accounts, the foster care system who took charge of their youngest daughter, the cosmetic surgeon who altered Piernock's face, the corrections officers after Piernock's arrest, 
the inmates who tried to solicit someone to murder his daughter again, the district attorney, the judge assigned to the case, his own half-dozen defense attorneys, the entire staff of the San Fernando courthouse, every single juror on the panel, all of these people put their heads together to somehow come up with this plan to frame Piernock for the murder of his wife and daughter so he would be locked up forever and never be able to publish a book when if someone wanted to silence him, they could have just killed Piernock and be done with it, ensuring that he would never be able to expose everyone's corruption. Or did Piernock, a proven, controlling, and manipulative domestic abuser, grew tired of his marriage, grew distant from his daughter, began an extramarital affair, wanted out of his marriage, but didn't want to split any assets, didn't want to get a divorce, began plotting the death of his wife and daughter as soon as he found out she was filing for divorce and made several lists detailing his plans, took out a million dollars worth of life insurance on his wife and then carried out his plan that failed and then he got caught because his daughter survived and was able to nail him to the wall? Occam's razor dictates the latter to be the most likely case. The simplest answer. Well, dreamers, I am going to put this story to bed now. I think I've talked long enough about Robert Piernock, and I really hope you enjoyed these episodes on his case, because I sure did. I was kind of worried about taking it on at first because I didn't see that there were many news articles online about it, but as usual, I seem to find a way to talk on and on about things. And I sure appreciate you coming back each time to listen to these stories that I tell. And don't forget to come back to the discussion page on Facebook and leave your comments and feedback there. Each episode is going to have a dedicated post that my friend Darren is going to put up after each weekend show. And that's where we can all go and talk to each other about these cases. Also, please follow me on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. Thank you always for commenting, sharing, posting about and supporting California Dreaming. I'm really excited to see this little show of ours grow little by little each week. And this upcoming week, we are going to do a little something different. For those of you who are on Patreon and have listened, know that I did an exclusive episode some months back on the life and death of Brandon Lee. Because the 25th anniversary of his death is approaching this week, I am going to release that episode for everyone at midnight on March 31st. There is still a retweeting drawing that is still going on, so go over to my Twitter, look at my pinned tweet, and everyone who retweets it gets entered into the drawing and wins a prize from California Dreaming. And as to not leave those who have already heard Brandon's story on Patreon without any new content this weekend, I am going to release a story, but it is going to be a very special case that was recommended to me by someone to whom the story means a great deal. It's a cold case, very cold. And I can't promise you one of my usual full-length episodes just because of the minimal amounts of information there is out there. But that being said, this is going to give me a good amount of time to work on the following week, which is going to be somewhat of a vacation series story. And I'll explain more as the weeks draw closer. I'm really excited to bring you these upcoming stories. California Dreaming is proudly a part of the Orbital Jigsaw Network of Podcasts. 
we have joined forces with an amazing group of shows and hosts to bring you a variety of podcasts across several different genres, including The Concession Stand, Busted Wide Open, Super Nerds UK, The Dirty Bits, Historium, Is This Adulting, 41 Owned, Film Roast, and we have two new additions to our podcast family. One I told you about last week, Vox Arcana, a Dungeons and Dragons podcast, and the Orbital Jigsaw Podience. You know I've been asking you to check out the Facebook page. Well, now it's going to be a podcast too. The founder and CEO of Orbital Jigsaw, Nick Howell, is bringing a show specifically to podcasters or aspiring podcasters with interviews with some of the top vendors and developers in podcasting. He's going to bring you some inside scoops and some behind the scenes information, why things happen the way that they happen, and some insider tips on how to best make your show a success. Listen to the introductory episode now, especially if you are a host or you're thinking about becoming one at www.orbitaljigsaw.com and click on the Orbital Jigsaw Podience link on the homepage. Thank you, as always, for tuning in to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. I hope you have a wonderful rest of the week. And until next time, sweet dreams.